Well, welcome, everybody. Um, I'm Mary Caldor, the co-director of the Centre for the Study of Global Governance. And we are incredibly privileged tonight that we have Lakhtar Brahimi, who's come as our distinguished visiting fellow. And it's really fantastic for us to have him here. Um, I thought I would just tell you a little story to start with, just because it illustrates who he is which is that we were at a conference in Berlin last year and we'd agreed to walk from the hotel to the place for dinner and it was pouring with rain and we were late, my fault actually. And in the midst of the rain, wondering what to do, a taxi sped up to us and opened the door and it was a Palestinian <laughs> who had recognized Mr. Brahimi in the rain and who was so thrilled to have him in his taxi that he drove us to the dinner place and absolutely refused any payment. And actually this is not the first time this has happened because he's held in such incredible esteem in the Middle East. Um, just to tell you a little bit, I mean, before joining the UN, which was I think 1993, he had a very distinguished diplomatic career both in Algeria, he was foreign minister, he was ambassador to London, and in the Arab League, where he did what he's probably the most famous for, which was brokering the Taif Agreement, which ended the Lebanese Civil War. But actually, and then he joined the UN, um, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, and we're going to talk about his role in Afghanistan and Iraq. But as a peacemaker, I think he has no parallel because not only did he end the Lebanese war, but he also was instrumental in ending apartheid, uh, also played a key role in the civil war in Yemen. So it's quite an extraordinary career and we're very, very lucky to have him. And what we're going to talk about today is his role as special envoy in Afghanistan and in Iraq. But we're not going to talk about his role so much as what he thinks of these wars. And we gave this session the title Afghanistan, Good War, Bad War, because that's how it tends to be presented, Afghanistan and Iraq, especially by President Obama. And so my first question is, is this a good statement? Do you agree with it? Thank you very, very much indeed, uh, Mary, first of all, for having me in LSE. As somebody who didn't graduate, it is uh, very intimidating to talk to uh, people who have already graduated several times. Um, and it is a great honor to be at uh, such a distinguished establishment of learning. Um, there are no good wars. Wars are, are bad, uh, always. Only some of them are worse than others. Uh, I think this good war, bad war about Iraq and Afghanistan came about because Afghanistan, I think the whole world understood that the United States had been provoked, had been attacked, uh, and that it was, in a sense, um, justified rather than good. Whereas in Iraq, it was uh, totally unjustified. It was opposed by 
all the people in the world, I think the only two countries where there was a majority of popular support for the war was the United States and Israel. Uh, even countries that participated uh, very uh, prominently in the war, like Britain, Spain, Italy, uh, their populations were overwhelmingly against the war. And then after the war had taken place, I think, you know, and perhaps we'll talk more about that later, uh, I think that everything that was done for three, four years was wrong in Iraq. Uh, whereas in, in, in Afghanistan, for at least two years, we did reasonably well. Uh, but then I think uh, Afghanistan is extremely bad uh, today, and we will also talk about that later. It was actually, when you went to Afghanistan as special envoy, it was actually your second visit to uh, Afghanistan. You were first sent in the mid-90s, and you are, in fact, the only UN person ever to have met Mullah Omar, the one-eyed leader of the Taliban. <laughs> So perhaps we could start by talking about that period and whether you think more could have been done uh, to moderate the Taliban at that time and to prevent the radicalization of al-Qaeda. Uh, yes, indeed. I, I was uh, in the, uh, the one before last uh, of a long list of special envoys that were sent by the United Nations to Afghanistan to try and end the civil war that had taken place there um, after the Russians uh, left uh, uh, the country in uh, uh, 1989. Um, I failed, just like everybody else before me, for mainly two reasons. One was that the neighbors of Afghanistan, instead of helping end the civil war, were actually actively fanning the flames of conflict. The second was that the international community was not really interested in Afghanistan. The Americans, the British, the Europeans were very enthusiastic about the struggle of the people of Afghanistan against the Soviet Union, lost interest when the Soviet Union left and ultimately disappeared. Um, no interest for a small country, far away, poor, uh, what do we care if they kill one another? It was what is uh, called in a phrase that I don't like very much, a low intensity conflict that did not affect uh, a lot of people. So after two years, 1997 to 1999, I told the Secretary General, I have done everything I know and we are not getting anywhere because of this reason. So I think the best I can do now for Afghanistan and for the United Nations is to publicly quit and say why. And I did, and I went to the, to the Security Council and I told them that, look, I'm quitting because I have no support from you. And without support from you, who is Kofi Annan and who am I? Nobody is unless we have very, very strong support from the international community, and especially from the Security Council, a United Security Council, we cannot do anything. The United Nations is nothing without its members, and especially its most important members. And I, 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 you know, I think I was carried away a little bit talking to the Security Council members, and I told them, you are wrong in your attitude. 
Yes, indeed, Afghanistan is a small country, a far country, poor country, uh, but the conflict cannot be bottled up inside one country forever. It will spill over, and it will affect us perhaps very, very far from the borders of Afghanistan. That is probably why they asked me to come back after 2001. <laughs> well, it's not always a good thing to be right. Mm. Um, um, do you want me to speak also about uh, the Taliban and Muhammad Omar? That uh, is exactly yeah. what I was about to ask. Yeah. And the Iranian prisoners? Um, yes, sure. Um, uh, you know, Muhammad Omar the young, was a young Afghan. Uh, you know, the word Taliban is misleading. It means student, and he definitely has been a student, but he had already fought in the uh, struggle, in the jihad, as they called it, against the Soviet Union, and that's how he lost his eye. Uh, he was a young, certainly under 40, very tall, very handsome, um, very soft-spoken, very shy, very... Uh, you know, embarrassed and conscious because of his eye. When he was talking, he was always you know, hiding his, uh, his, his bad eye. Um, I think that he, he was definitely uh, an idealist. He and his friends rose up against their leaders. The leaders who fought against the Russians liberated their country and then started fighting one another and more importantly, fighting their own people. And they were really misbehaving in, in, you know, in all sorts of ways. So their, their aim was, we must get rid of these people just as we got rid of the Russians, and they, 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 they succeeded. And I think contrary to what uh, people think outside of Afghanistan, in many, many places they were welcomed. They were welcomed because at least, you know, if you, as an Afghan, kept your beard long and your women folk at home, they left you alone. And that's not something terrible for an Afghan to do. That's what they do anyway. They keep their women at home and, and, and their beards are very long. Uh, so they, they, didn't, they didn't bother people. Uh, and one doctor told me there, one doctor working for, the, for, for, for WHO, actually, he told me, I'm very happy that they have taken over. I said, but you know, uh, how can you, you know, they are even forcing you to dress like this. He said, that's not a terrible problem to dress like this. I have a daughter who is 11. She's not going to school now, but she was not going to school before because I was afraid for her that she would be kidnapped and, and raped. Now she's staying at home, but I know that she, nothing is going to happen to her. So I think this is, uh, you know, the, I think there is a lot to be said about, uh, about the Taliban. Um, just to uh, illustrate you know, two stories uh, about the, uh, I think the meeting, the long meeting I had with, with Mullah Muhammad Omar was after they swept north and occupied Mazar Sharif. They killed nine members of the uh, Iranian consulate uh, general in, in Mazar Sharif. And they arrested all the Iranians they found, mostly truck drivers. Uh, the Iranians, of course, uh, uh, you know, were up in arms, literally. And they massed 200,000 soldiers along the border and was thre were threatening to invade uh, Afghanistan. 
Um, so I went to say Mullah Muhammad Omar, and uh, after session of five hours, he agreed to, uh, to release all the prisoners. The next day, we sent them in two planes, one provided by ICRC and one by us, United Nations. Um, and I think you know, the uh, Iranians withdrew their, uh, their uh, uh, soldiers and things uh, quieted down. The other thing is, when I saw him, and I told him, look, the tracks of these tribes, about 50 of them, they belong to simple people. They don't belong to the Iranian government. So I think and they, are, they are the livelihood of, of, of these families in Iran. He didn't say anything. So I was very surprised a um, few weeks later when he call, they called me and they said, uh, tell the Iranians to come and take their trucks. And they, re, re, they gave back every single truck to, to, to the uh, Iranians. Uh, they did the same thing with us in Bamiyan. When they invaded Bamiyan, they took our offices, our cars, uh, and they broke the warehouses of WFP, uh, food. But after a very short time, they gave us every single car back and the keys to the warehouse, saying we have distributed some food while uh, you know, we were here, and now here is the rest of the food is, is, is here. So. Uh, of all the people that we were dealing with in those days in Afghanistan, there is no doubt that the Taliban were the most honest of, of, of the lot. Uh, there, is, there is no doubt about that. Um, so, you know, I think that now, looking back, we have demonized the Taliban perhaps a little bit excessively. They weren't worse than, much worse than a lot of other people. Um, and to, and um, uh, today, uh, people are talking about talk, you know, negotiating with the Taliban or not. Perhaps if we had been a little bit, uh, you know, if we understood a little bit more what the situation in Afghanistan was, who, who was who, uh, perhaps a lot of uh, bad things that happened wouldn't have happened. Your other example was going to be the statues, the Buddhists. Yes, the, the, uh, that, is, that, is, that is also a very, very interesting story. This, um, you know, again, in, in, in 2008, when they swept north and occupied Bamiyan, where these uh, giant uh, Buddha statues are, some of their commanders started saying, we are going to destroy these Buddha statues because this is un-Islamic. But when I saw him, I said, look, these statues are part of uh, the world heritage, uh, cultural heritage, and they are terribly important for a lot of people in the world who are Buddhists, and in particular for Japan. And Japan is very generous for your people. So you, uh, I, mean, I hope that what we hear about from your commanders is not going to happen. And his answer then, that is 2000, um, in 1998, September 1998. His answer was, these Buddhas are not part of the world cultural heritage. They are part of the Afghan cultural heritage. Nobody has touched them since Islam has come to this country, 1300 years, and nobody will touch them now. What happened between September 1998 and early 2000, um, 
I can, you know, we can only speculate. And I think that some foreign influences have come to bear on him that uh, not only he changed his mind, but he was adamant uh, in the face of uh, so many uh, people who went to Kandahar to see him and plead for him not to destroy the Buddhas, and they did destroy them. Well, now, before we go on to the next phase of Afghanistan, maybe we could talk a little bit about the Brahimi report. In mm. 2000, uh, Lakhtar was asked by the Secretary General to convene a panel in the, after the terrible tragedies in Srebrenica and Rwanda. He felt there needed to be an investigation of UN peace operations. And this resulted in the famous Brahimi report. So my question is to tell us a little bit about the main conclusions of that report. Well, I was very, very surprised when the report became almost as famous as you are saying it. <laughs> because I was guaranteed by everybody that you know, it will be one of the many reports that the UN has produced and it will be thrown on a shelf somewhere to gather dust with um, thousands of other reports. So we were very, very surprised that uh, that did not happen. Um, maybe it's because it was the millennium, but perhaps also because we were really at a fork. Um, the end of the, civil, of the Cold War, people were dreaming of a United Nations that was going to be very active and that was going to protect peace where it was, there and promote peace where it wasn't there. And indeed, I think we've done some very, very good things. Uh, Namibia, um, um, Cambodia, Lebanon, although it was not the, UN, the United Nations who did it. Uh, and then all of a sudden, things changed. And the UN started stumbling from failure to failure, especially Srebrenica and, and, uh, and Rwanda. Terrible thing. Rwanda, 800,000 people killed, and the UN looking on there. Srebrenica, worse in a sense, because the United Nations, um, uh, uh, you know, through its most important body, the Security Council, told people here, Srebrenica is a safe place. Come there if you are afraid of anything, we will protect you. People believed the United Nations went there and they were slaughtered and the UN was not capable of doing anything. So people started talking, as a matter of fact, and saying, you know, this peacekeeping of the United Nations, we should end it. It's useless. You know, if, if that is the result of peacekeeping, what for? So I think Kofi was very uh, well inspired to say, okay, let's take a look and see if we can do business uh, better. This is what we, we tried to do, and our uh, many, many recommendations, I, can, I cannot go through them now. And I think essentially, we told the Security Council, when you give a mandate, be certain that it is doable. And if you ask the United Nations to do uh, for you a job, make sure that you give them the tools to do the job, all the tools to do the job. In Srebrenica, they took, I don't know how many resolutions. And they said, we'll have, I think, something like 10,000 soldiers there. Uh, 
and the United Nations, Boutros Ghali and Kofi Annan, who was then the head of, of peacekeeping, told, told them, this is not enough to protect this place. They said, no, 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 you just go ahead. Uh, so uh, they, you, know, you, you must be a little bit more responsible than that. And when you give a mandate, make sure you know, that it is, it is doable and give the, rule, the, the tools that are needed to do, to, to, to do the job. We also told the Secretary General, you must not shy away from the Security Council and tell them what they tell you behind closed doors. This is what we want your report to, 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 to tell us. Tell them what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. So these are some of the things. And also, you know, DPKO, uh, Department of Peacekeeping, was doing, you know, moving armies uh, across the world with, um, I think, about a couple of hundred uh, 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 staff. This is, this is ridiculous, you, you know. I think it's less than the staff that is in national armies for, for one battalion. Uh, so I think we, we increased, we asked for an increase and they accepted and they gave an increase of the staff of uh, DPKO and uh, a number of uh, uh, other things that were, um, uh, I think, have, have improved the way in which the United Nations uh, do the, uh, their job. Uh, we were very lucky that what happened, uh, what happened after that was Kosovo and Timor where the United Nations did rather well. Uh, so uh, you know, people forgot about you know, the stories. But then we are now at a stage where the United Nations has 100,000 soldiers spread all over the place. And I think the Security Council has relapsed in its uh, you know, bad habits of giving uh, totally unrealistic uh, mandates with no resources. Look at, uh, at Darfur, for example. Uh, they have decided in 2006 that they are going to send 26,000 soldiers. Until now, those 26,000 soldiers are not there. Um, they do not have helicopters. Uh, we, on behalf of this little group, the elders, have written to half a dozen uh, countries, say, please, can you give a few helicopters to Darfur? And uh, nothing has happened. Uh, so, you know, uh, if they continue like this, the United Nations is going to, fo to fail again, and we will start again talking about, uh, you know, what's the use of the United Nations, what's the use of peacekeeping, and so on. I suppose, though, the other big problem that the United Nations faced, well, actually, we're going to come to that yeah. later, yeah. is on Iraq, yeah. but I'll come back to that. Let, before we turn to the problem of the United Nations and Iraq, let's, let's talk about the second phase in Afghanistan. And in particular, uh, you were appointed um, just before 9-11. Uh, just after. Just, just after 9-11 to become, yeah. that's right, immediately after 9-11. Yeah. Next day, you were appointed as special envoy yeah. to Afghanistan. So then you were responsible for the bomb process. You went to run it for two years. So just looking at the whole two-year process, what do you think were the successes and failures of the international mission? Um, you know, I think we, 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 uh, uh, we exploited 
the fact that the United States had bombed Iraq, uh, Afghanistan uh, and uh, uh, destroyed the, 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 the Taliban regime. And destroyed the Taliban regime, they, they, really, uh, they really routed them. So they left the cities, ran away from the cities. Uh, so we, we climbed on the back of this uh, American, purely American uh, war uh, to see if we can help Afghanistan stand again on its own two feet and, and, and rebuild itself. Um, the problem in Bonn is that it was a very, very hurried uh, uh, process put together in a matter of days. The conference in Bonn lasted 10 days only. Uh, and I told everybody in Bonn there, including the Afghans, uh, look, the people who have come to Bonn are not representative of the rich variety of the people of Afghanistan. Uh, therefore, let's go now and see if we can uh, enlarge the basis of what we have created in, 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 in Bonn. Um, we went to, 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 to Afghanistan, uh, installed the administration that was put together under Karzai um, on the 22nd of December 2001, and we started working there. I think we've done a lot of very, very good things. Uh, you know, after all, uh, it's not bad that the country has had two years, maybe even three, of relative peace. Uh, almost, I don't know, three, four, five million refugees have come back. Um, the, you have six million kids in school now, 35% of them girls. Uh, some, unbelievably, I hear now from I mean, very serious sources and several people there that something like 80% of the people of Afghanistan have access to some kind of med medical care. Nothing like what you have here, not at all. But still, people who have never seen a nurse or a doctor or have, have had in their hands a piece of, you know, a pill of something, have now access to some kind of medicine. It's not too bad. Um, so these are things that were achieved. We, we, had, we had very successful, uh, uh, two successful lawyers. The constitution-making process was, I think, the envy of many, many other places, much better than Iraq, definitely. Um, but we failed in three, 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 three essential uh, ways. Um, yeah. I'm sorry if uh, I can't start from the beginning, but uh, I hope you. <laughs> uh, um, you know, the, the, the three important failures are, first of all, as I said, the people in Bonn were not representative. More than that, I think domination was given back to the people the Taliban had defeated and thrown out to the satisfaction of the people of Afghanistan. It is the same people, the same individuals, who came back to, 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 to rule Afghanistan with our support with our protection, with our money, with our weapons. I mean, ours, uh, not, not mine or yours, but uh, <laughs> you know, the international community. Yeah? So that's, that's, uh, that, that is not good enough. So what, what was needed 
was to reach out to those who were not represented in Bonn. And we didn't do that. In particular, nobody wanted to hear of talking to the Taliban. We timidly tried to say, look, the Taliban have not surrendered to anybody. Where are they? They were dominating 90 to 95% of the country. It is the people who were hanging on to the 5% of the territory that are now running Afghanistan. It doesn't make sense. But nobody wanted to, 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 to listen that you know, Taliban are gone, finished, don't worry about them. After two years, in 2003, I went around, came to, even to London, um, speaking of something I called in those days the Born to uh, uh, project. What I was saying is that, look, with every reason, anybody who has been involved in this process, has, we have all, every reason to be proud of what we have done. We've done great things. But in two years of activity, we must have made some mistakes. And then, even if we haven't made any mistakes, let's take a look and see where do we go from here. But then, you know, the Americans were preparing their elections, and more importantly, they had just invaded Iraq. They didn't want to hear of any suspicion that anything was wrong in Afghanistan. Afghanistan was perfect. Everything that was being done there was, was great. So no, no uh, born to process or anything. We don't need anything of that. The second thing that we asked is we said, you know, these people that we have put in power, they are not liked by the people and they cannot be trusted. Now, we have ISAF, the international force, uh, multinational force that was only in Kabul. Immediately we got into Afghanistan, people were telling us we would like to have some of these foreigners. Because the fear was that, you know, the Afghans don't like foreigners and they will revolt against them and so on. But the Afghans are, are not stupid. They make a difference between people who come as friends and people who come as invaders. They knew that ISAF were, I mean, were friends. ISAF was led first time around by British general. John McCall. At the Loya Jirga in June, you know, he arrived about in you know, February. In June, in the Loya Jirga, 3,000 people from all over Afghanistan, they applauded John McCall more than anybody else, even more than Karzai. The Afghans, I mean, knew that these were friends. Even British general was, was a friend. Uh, but there again, so we said, let us. Kofi Annan came to Afghanistan on the 25th of January. That's just one month after we arrived in Afghanistan, 2002. And we said, let's expand ISAF outside of Kabul. If you give us, you know, I naively said 5,000, uh, because I didn't know that, uh, you know, the rich countries, 5,000 troops means 8,000, 800 people in the streets. Um, so I think probably 10,000, 15,000 soldiers in 2002 would have made a hell of a difference. I think combination of uh, an expansion of ISAF outside of Kabul and reaching out to those Taliban who may have been willing to uh, come back may have created a totally, totally different. The third, third problem, 
Um, I didn't know then, but I'm sure of this now, absolutely certain. The Americans were never interested in Afghanistan. They went there uh, to, uh, you know, running after Mr. Beladen. He happened to be in Afghanistan, so they were looking for him. That's all. They were not interested in Afghanistan. In September 2001, they had already decided to go to Iraq. Baghdad was the, 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 the objective. So Afghanistan was seen as a distraction throughout. We didn't know that then. Uh, we found that much, uh, much later. And this was a huge handicap. Uh, some Americans, important people who were there, told me how difficult it was for them to get any money from the American government for Afghanistan. And the answer was that, you remember the, the campaign of the president not very long ago, in, in, in 99, was that America has no business doing any nation building. So we are not interested in building Afghanistan. We are looking for the guy who attacked us, that's all. So this is you know, the, the third handicap that we have. And I think this is how we, we got uh, where we are. Um, I don't know if you want me to add a few things about NATO now. Uh, perhaps uh, I think we should say very briefly, NATO has been a terrible disappointment. Uh, I think NATO does not exist, in Afghanistan anyway. Um, Paddy Ashton has written an open letter to uh, Holbrook couple of days ago, or a little bit more, I don't know, in which he says, the British think that Afghanistan is Helmand, because they happen to be in Helmand. The Canadians think that Afghanistan is Kandahar, because they are in Kandahar. The Dutch think that uh, uh, Afghanistan is in Uruzgan, and that's all. The Germans think that it is the valley, the Panjshir Valley, and the Americans think that they are running after Beledin. So if this is what NATO is, uh, I think that it is very, very high time that they change. Uh, is it better now, voice? Thanks. <laughs> what a pity. Uh, I hope you didn't miss too much. Perhaps I should move mine. Oh, gosh, now I'm going to... That was a mistake. So. Oh, thanks. Perhaps I should move mine too. Is that better? Um, but now... Uh, this, your last remarks about their interest in Iraq. Actually, you left Iraq in January 2004 after the uh, second... Afghanistan. Afghanistan, mm. sorry. Yeah. Um, and immediately were asked to go to Iraq. Mm. And I think we might start by talking about the UN role because it was a very difficult time. Sergio de Mello uh, had been killed. Um, on, in August 2003. 19th of August. Yeah, mm. end of August 2003. Mm. And, you know, in a way, all the problems that you talked about earlier in relation to peace operations really have become greatly exacerbated since Iraq and since the tendency worldwide to somehow identify the UN with Iraq, which is yeah. quite wrong. Uh, well, I'm glad that you have mentioned Sergio. Um, Kofi Annan, just before he ended his uh, second term in 2006, he was interviewed, I think it was by the BBC, 
and he was asked what was the decision he regretted most in his 10 years. And he said the decision he regretted most was definitely sending Sergio and his team to Iraq. Uh, of course, in an interview, he didn't elaborate on that, but I think this is probably a recurring nightmare for Kofi now. A lot of people told him not to send anybody to Iraq. The Americans invaded Iraq against the clear uh, wish of the United Nations. Not only that, once they had invaded Iraq, they came back to the Security Council and asked and obtained from the Security Council to recognize them as the occupiers, as the occupying power in, in, in Iraq. So what do they want from the United Nations? They have invaded the country. They are occupying it. They have now the legal uh, um, status of an occupying power. What, what, is, what is the role of the United Nations? And quite a few people told him, don't send anybody now. One day, the Americans are going to face real difficulties in Iraq. Then they will come back to you. Then you send somebody because there will be a job for, for, for the United Nations to do. And if there is a job for, for the United Nations, you cannot, you cannot say no. But for the moment, there is no job for the United Nations. But of course, the pressure from the Americans, the British, and everybody else was such that uh, he sent Sergio, and on the 19th of uh, August, uh, Sergio was killed. Since then, it's not only since then, you know, it has been building up. But certainly the war in Iraq has, has, has been a, a very, very big turning point. The United Nations, you know, the flag of the United Nations, that used to be a protection. You know, we used to go everywhere just with the flag. You know, in Afghanistan, we used to cross, you know, all the uh, uh, lines between the uh, factions who were fighting one another just with the flag. And during the spring, the uh, vaccination season, they will stop fighting to allow teams of the United Nations to travel throughout the country. The flag was a protection. The UN flag now is a target. And you've seen what happened in Algiers in December on the 10th or the 11th of December uh, 2007, where the United Nations has been attacked uh, as, I mean, they knew it was the United Nations, and they say, yes, we are attacking the United Nations. The United Nations has done absolutely nothing in Algeria. It's not that Algerians were angry against the United Nations for something they had done or not done. It is because it is the United Nations. Kofi Annan, again, before he left, to his credit, in one of his last speeches to the General Assembly, said, you know, the United Nations is becoming, uh, is, is, uh, uh, you know, uh, is losing its credibility. And it is important that we all work, not only the Secretary General, of course, but the member states, to reestablish that credibility. I'm afraid that's not happening, as we can see in Gaza these days. Um, uh, so, you know, the United Nations, uh, I think Iraq has been, has been very bad. And it is, it is very ironic because we have no role there. 
We have no troops. We have no, I mean, the only role we have is trying to help the people of Iraq either in, on the humanitarian level or at the political level. Now, to come back to me, in January, when I arrived in, in New York, uh, although working for the United Nations, I had publicly said, spoken against the war before it started and after it started. Uh, so everybody knew uh, that uh, I was not a supporter of what uh, was happening in Iraq. But the Americans sat, came with the Iraqis, the governing council, to New York in January and said, please, now, the Americans said, we've changed our policy. We don't want to remain as an occupying power. We would like to restore Iraqi sovereignty. And we cannot do it alone. We need your help. I, you know, I, I didn't like, I didn't want to go to Iraq, but uh, probably the, the, you know, the mediator in me said, you, know, you, you can't say no. Um, now I think I regret that I have gone there because I don't think I have done such a good job. And I don't think the Americans wanted to, uh, uh, then anyway, to restore, really, uh, Iraqi uh, sovereignty. They just wanted the kind of fig leaf to say that there is now a government and, and so on and so forth. We helped them do that. I, I think we've done one or two little things that were not bad. The most important thing, the most important uh, recommendation that they have accepted and the government accepted was to go for national reconciliation. But that did not happen. That did not happen. And they went in the uh, uh, opposite direction. And the war actually intensified after our uh, few months in Iraq rather than, than diminish. You did at least talk to people who felt they'd never been talked to. I was there in May 2004. And each time I met people, they said, you're the only person who's come to talk to us apart from Lakhtar Brahimi. <laughs> so at least you reached out to some people that weren't talked yeah. to by the Americans. Yeah, we did talk to uh, a lot of people. I think we, you know, uh, I think the, there were some good people in the government. There were also some bad people who were thrown out of the government. Unfortunately, they were thrown out of the door. They came out from the window, uh, as often happens in these situations. Uh, so it wasn't all bad what we did there, but all in all, I think uh, uh, it wasn't a very good experience. It wasn't a good experience to be working with an occupying power. Uh, that's, uh, you know, that alone was, was, was a very, very heavy burden every single day I was in Iraq. Well, so maybe we could just talk in general what's now probably the same as when you started your view of the war in Iraq? Uh, well, um, when I went to Iraq, uh, of course I had the opportunity of meeting all sorts of very important people. Every single, I met, the single one I met, I said, why did you invade Iraq? Because this legend that they thought that there were weapons of mass destruction is just that, a legend. They knew perfectly well that there was no weapons of this mass destruction. And these stories about, uh, you know, uh, these very clever CIA and MI5 and 6 and I don't know, 7, 
that they didn't know and that they misled their governments uh, is, is nonsense. They knew perfectly well that uh, there were no weapons over there. So why did they invade Iraq? They have destroyed the country. Iraqis will tell you today that one million people have been killed. So, uh, you know, Americans and uh, the Iraqi government and so on say this is wildly exaggerated. I hope so. I hope it is wildly exaggerated. Uh, I, I don't think so. The country has been destroyed. Why? Isn't there anybody responsible for this? Um, there is a story that is uh, in, in a booklet written by Mr. McGovern and somebody else about um, Kut, the place in, in Iraq. Next to Kut, there is a, a, an important archaeological site. The Americans built a, how do you call it, an helipad? Is it the place where helicopters land? Is it helipad? Exactly on that site. They have destroyed 6,000 years of history. Isn't there a sergeant, a captain, maybe a colonel even, that we can ask? There's so much sand in Iraq where they could have built their, their, their helipad. Why on, on, on that? Why did they allow all those museums to be looted? I think it is now known and, 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 and recognized that the only place they protected was the Ministry of Oil in Baghdad. Why? So all these questions, I think, I will continue to ask them. Because the, the, I think we, the Iraqis and all of us require an answer to this question. We don't want this to happen again. And I think we've got to go on asking, why did you do this to the people of Iraq? We have got to go on asking this question. Things have improved. This is very, very welcome. And I very much hope that uh, you know, Iraq will flourish again and will be a great country again and will be a democracy and will be peace and that the nightmare they lived under Saddam Hussein will never come back. Some people are starting to say that, ah, well, look, we had a very good election, so Mr. Bush was right. No, sir. Mr. Bush destroyed Iraq, and that is a crime. That doesn't change because there was a good election or even because Iraq is going to become a great democracy and a very prosperous country. It doesn't change. These are two different things. The war was bad. The war was wrong. The war was unjust. It will remain that. It will not change. Now, we very, very much hope that the new America will behave much better and will will we'll, we'll get credit for uh, changing things, helping things to change in Iraq. But what has happened, I think some people are responsible for it, and we have got to continue to ask questions about that. Do you think that Bush and Blair should be tried for war crimes? War crimes have been committed in, in Iraq. Um, I, I will... Uh, uh, not very courageously avoid the question by saying <laughs> that I asked somebody exactly the same question a few months ago and he told me, you know, you know that will not happen. Uh, but then again I ask why? Why will that not happen? So 
Now, actually, I was going to ask you about the surge, but I think yeah. we're coming up for So why don't I combine that with, because we should leave some time for mm. questions. Mm. Well, both about the surge, was it the surge that helped the situation, but also is Obama's surge going to work in Afghanistan? Yeah, you know, these are two questions that need, I'm willing to come back and we'll start all over again, if you like. <laughs> um, on Iraq, uh, it depends what, what is it that you call a surge. I think those officers that were saying what um, 160,000 soldiers do, 140,000 can do. I think they were right. It's not the 20,000 soldiers that were added that made a difference. What made a difference is that the Americans start, stopped bombing. They stopped bombing and killing people. So people started saying, okay, now let's uh, see what happens. What has happened was that the people of Al-Anbar, you know, don't forget that Fallujah was completely destroyed in Al-Anbar. Completely destroyed, completely. Uh, the people of Al-Anbar said, we don't want to kill our brother and Shia anymore. And we don't want anybody to do it on our behalf. Um, by the way, uh, you know, when people speak about fighting Al-Qaeda in Iraq and so on, let's remember that Al-Qaeda was taken there, as it were, by the invasion. It didn't exist before. Anyhow, I think what has happened was that the Iraqi people have, uh, uh, you know, decided to stop killing one another. And one of also, the sad part of it is that what has separated the Iraqis and diminished the intensity of the civil war was um, ethnic cleansing. Ethnic cleansing has taken place in Iraq. Four to six million people have been moved. Two million outside the country, two, three, four million inside the country. In Iraq, a judge, an Iraqi judge was telling me the other day that his, he and his brother live in houses that were a few yards apart but they built a wall between them. Now it takes them half an hour to, to, to get to one another's house. So ethnic cleansing has taken place in Iraq. This is what has changed the, the, the situation. What is good in, in this election is that the Iraqis seem to be saying, we don't want uh, to be separated from one another again. And if this is true, this is terribly encouraging. On Afghanistan, you know, I said a little bit about uh, uh, about uh, NATO, um, things are very bad. And again, I think it was Petrius who said recently, and Gates and everybody, Afghanistan has been known as the graveyard of empires. And what I'm telling people, something very simple. If you give the impression to the people of Afghanistan that you are an occupying power, they will fight you and they will defeat you. They have done it with the biggest power in, in the 19th century. They have done it with the second biggest power in the 20th. They will do it with the only big alliance that exists in the 21st century. So, but you have a chance to prove to the Iraqi, to, to the people of Afghanistan that you are their friend. Like Isaac did in Kabul in, in, in 2002 and 2003. If you can demonstrate to them that you are their friend, then everything is possible. 
The other point to remember is that now, you know, this, this spilling over of the conflict has gone very, very far, not only into Pakistan, but also now into India. So, you know, the, 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 the equation has become more complicated. Uh, but I still think that it is, it is doable if everybody really uh, uh, realizes how serious, how urgent, uh, the situation is, and if everybody works seriously together uh, to address the real problem that exists in Afghanistan. Well, my final question, because I want a chance for other people to ask questions, is if you think back on these two wars, what do you think is the implication for the UN and for future peace operations? You know, after the, um, the bombing in Algiers, um, again, uh, you know, I, I accepted uh, to, to chair another panel to look at the security of uh, how to protect better the staff and premises of the United Nations around the world. And one of the things that we have seen everywhere we've gone is precisely this point, that, you know, as I said earlier, the flag has become a target, and protecting the United Nations has become, has become a very, very big uh, big problem. Um, I, I think I'm not uh, giving away any, any, any secret in saying that uh, a country like Britain is spending for the protection of its embassy in Baghdad alone uh, millions of pounds. Uh, I don't know, 20, 30, 50 million, maybe 50 million, maybe even more, just for protection. The UN cannot afford that. Uh, member states will not give the, uh, you know, that kind of money for the United Nations to protect itself around the world in that manner. So the only way they have is to improve their, their, their record and therefore their credibility and the respect of the people they have. And then what, what do you want the UN for if it becomes a bunker? If wherever we are, we are in a bunker closed, we don't talk to anybody, we don't go out. We, we, we don't receive people in, in our offices. What's the UN? There's no need for the UN. So I think th this is very, very serious. Uh, I was very, very encouraged, uh, I mean, you know, reasonably encouraged to read the speech of Susan Rice to the uh, uh, Senate when she was confirmed. Uh, I think the, the, the US seemed to understand that the UN that a credible UN, a working UN, is not too bad for them. If this is true, then perhaps we can start uh, building. But there are still too many, too many question marks. And there is no doubt that Iraq uh, and Afghanistan have, have, have not uh, helped us very much. Uh, in Iraq, we have spoken a little bit about what happened there and you know, the fact that uh, the UN did not do enough to prevent the war, did not, was not successful in preventing the war. And then once the war uh, it, uh, has started, it has allowed itself, in particular through the presence of Sergio, Sergio and, and myself, to be identified with an occupying power is, is, is not very good. Uh, in Afghanistan, you know, I told you before 9-11, the UN was really, uh, seen as, as what it is and what it should be. I think since then, 
we've gone to bed a little bit too much with NATO and so on, and NATO uh, is, is and in, you know, running the risk of being seen as an occupying uh, foreign power. Uh, so I, I have been, for example, pleading with my former colleagues, that, you know, you've got to take your distance now from NATO. They don't need you. Take your distance and reestablish your credibility with the people of Afghanistan. One of the things that is being discussed uh, sometimes is do we talk to the Taliban or not? If you decide to talk to the Taliban, who better than the United Nations can do it? And who better than the United Nations that, that, that is seen as independent and neutral and impartial can do uh, this, this, this job if, 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 it is, uh, if, if it is decided that it needs to be done? Well, I hope they send you. (laughs) I've done my bit. (laughs) So, thank you very much for answering all my questions. (laughs) And now we can open open for questions from the floor. And what I'll do is I'll take about three at a time. So we start with this. If you oh, just sorry. wait for the microphone. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Brahimi. Uh, my name is Huria Musadek, and I'm an Afghan citizen. Okay, an Afghan? Citizen, yeah. <coughs> Salam. Uh, I have uh, two comments and a question. Uh, you mentioned about uh, Taliban takeover from Bamiyan and Mazar-e Sharif, and you were talking that they were like quite responsive to the questions and demands of the United Nations. I was wondering how much they were really responsive to the questions or plead of the United Nations not to massacre thousands of people in Bamiyan and Mazar-e Sharif, which happened during the 90s when they took over Mazar-e Sharif and Bamiyan. And uh, also, You said that Taliban were welcomed. I absolutely agree with you. In the 90s, Taliban were really welcomed because we were quite fed up with the war, with the horror that were happening on our daily life. But how much Taliban are welcomed now? Are they the same Taliban who were promising people peace, justice, and disarmament? And uh, also, you mentioned about the Bonn conference, about the Bonn conference, about the presence of 5% of the war criminals who represented Afghan people in the Bonn conference by the support of the international community and by the support of the United Nations, unfortunately. But wasn't, I'm sorry, I have lots of respect for your work and for your efforts for Afghanistan, but you mentioned in the Loya Jirge in June 2002 that we cannot sacrifice peace for justice in Afghanistan. And you allowed war criminals to be part of the government. And after, after eight years, I can see that we have lost the peace and we never gained justice. Thank you. I'll take two more and sure. let you, just because otherwise the gentleman here. Wait, wait Sorry, a minute, you need if everyone just waits for a microphone. Uh, I happen to be from Iraq. 
Afghanistan, Iraq. <laughs> Afghanistan and then Iraq, yes. That's the right. And the I happen to be one of the person whom you have contacted in 2004 to talk to, but unfortunately I was here beside my ailing wife who died later, so I couldn't have the, have the honor to meet you, but my friend did, or my friends. The problem is, Mr. Ibrahimi, as my friend from Afghanistan said, with all your good work in Iraq, with all the respect you have from the Iraqis, because you were the only international person who contacted the people of Iraq, not the people who came with the Americans, but the people from inside Iraq. And you came with a beautiful and very accepted plan that of establishing a government of technocrats and asking the other political parties or personalities who came with the Americans, who are supporters of the Americans, or, or even if they were not, eh, to go and campaign for the coming elections. And after six months of transitional period, they could then go to election and decide which government. Now, of course, the Americans interfered. First, they told you they have to have to nominate the prime minister. Then they nominated the minister of defense, who is a very, uh, very well-known person now because of his corruption and lives here with the million he pinched from Iraq with his British passport, and nobody asks him where did you bring the money from. And then they appointed the minister of, of interior. And then your whole plan was void. You couldn't do anything. And the things that the Iraqi is disappointed in, or they, I don't say reproach you, but they would have liked you to say, to come out and say, this is not my plan, this is the American, and they have destroyed your hope. This is the first point I have to tell you, and I am sincere in that with all my respect to you, and I know you have done in, in, in a very honest way. The second thing was that the United Nations did not really play any role. For example, now you have told us that when you couldn't do anything in Afghanistan, you simply resigned. You came out and you said to the, to the Security Council that you couldn't do anything, but you didn't do that in the Iraqi case, and this is unfortunate. And just two comments for your, what you have said, just to support what you have said. Babylon itself, the historical uh, 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 place of Babylon itself, became a camp for the American army, not only other historic, but his Babylon itself was destroyed by the by the tanks and the vehicles of the American army. And I have only one question, last question, I don't know whether you'll be able to answer it. You have never mentioned the Israeli factor in the invasion of Iraq. Is there a factor? Some people, a lot of people in Iraq believe that it was because of oil and the security of Israel. And that's what Mr. Brzezinski said in his last book, The Last Chance, that the, the, the war on terror was used as an excuse to reach oil and to protect the security of Israel. I'm sorry to have given you all these questions, but I hope you could and answer. I must say that I've let these two go on because they were the Afghanistani and Iraqi, but I hope other questions will be a little bit shorter. And I'm going to ask one of these people in the back here um, if you can get round. <coughs> Thanks. Uh, my question uh, echoes an Iraqi gentleman's question. Uh, and bearing in mind what you said about uh, us 
aligning ourselves very closely with the very narrow and isolated clique in Afghanistan. Can you pass comment on the choices made by Afghans uh, during elections? About? About Afghanistan, the people of Afghanistan, what choices did they make uh, in the elections? Were they constrained in those choices? Uh, past or, or future? Past. I'd better let you answer those questions because they're quite big questions. Well, you know, in Afghanistan, uh, yes, the Taliban have killed a lot of people. Um, and somebody maybe will say whether they killed more or less than the others. But unfortunately, all the people who were involved in that war have killed. And, uh, you know, in Mazar Sharif in particular, one year before they invaded Mazar Sharif in 1998, in 97, they had made a deal with uh, um, uh, Malik Khan, and about 3,000 of their people were massacred in, in Mazar Sharif, and they brought their uh, their bodies. I think they they were they were particularly nasty to the Hazara. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, so I, I don't think I have said that, uh, and if I said that, I was wrong. I didn't say that the Taliban were very nice people and uh, better than everybody else. What uh, I was trying to say is that they were not worse than anybody else. And as you recognized yourself, uh, when they came, they were, you know, they were welcomed. In Mazar, in 97, I went there, and people came to me and said, when are the Taliban coming? because they were so fed up with the manner in which they were treated by uh, you know, the so-called Northern Alliance who were uh, you know, misbehaving. About the lawyer Jirga, um, you see, there is, uh, um, there is, uh, you know, there, is there are all sorts of, uh, of, uh, of approaches to these problems. Uh, one of them consists uh, that you know, uh, say in saying that uh, you know, let's find only the best people that exist in the world, and create now the new Afghanistan with these people. Let's you know, do away with all the the, the the rest. That would be great if it were possible. The lawyer Jirga, I think, you know, that, that again, you know, I think if, uh, if students are interested, maybe we can talk about that later. Uh, the, the technique of, uh, you know, the, the lawyer Jirga, the manner in which we have chosen people is not the traditional manner where you take just the heads of uh, tribes and so on. You know, we try to combine uh, town hall meetings and so on and so forth. One of the people you call, uh, I suppose, war criminal is Dostum. Yeah? Well, in one of the meetings that we organized, there were about 1,000 people in Shebarga. 1,000 people unanimously said we want Dostum to represent us. They were intimidated, they were forced, I don't know, but what I'm trying to say is that things are you know, extremely difficult to the other point is, when you end a messy war like the one in Afghanistan, what you want to do is really bring people together. 
And that means that you bring also quite a lot of the bad people. Um, in in Afghanistan, what we did in Bonn, however, of course, these people wanted to have in the Bonn Agreement uh, uh, provision for a blanket amnesty, that everything that has happened before must not be looked at again. That we have opposed. So the possibility, and in the Constitution, they wanted to put it in the Constitution again. And again, we, we advised them not to do it, and it is not in the Constitution. Apart from that, you know, the, the, the job I do is not the job of a, a human rights activist. It, it is the job of a peacemaker. Mary spoke to you about Lebanon. When I went to Lebanon, you know, I met a lot of, you know, rather bad characters. And I put the limit somewhere, I said, you know, a, B, and C, I'm not going to meet them. It's too much, considering what they have done. But then one day, you know, I told myself, what the hell am I doing in Lebanon? Talk to nice people. Nice people are in Paris. I didn't need to come here. <laughs> and the next day, I went and saw these people. And frankly, one of them in particular helped that a lot finish uh, the civil war in, in Lebanon. So, you, you know, uh, this, is, this is very welcome criticism or, or comment. Uh, these, are, these processes are, are difficult, messy, complicated. Um, the elections in Afghanistan, just to finish in Afghanistan before the more difficult questions about Iraq, um, I think, you know, the elections in, 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 in Afghanistan um, I think the presidential elections were very good. The, the parliamentary elections, it was the local forces that were at play. And what you have is all the people that you don't like. Not all of them, but quite a few of them are, 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 are in parliament now. Uh, this is extremely difficult to avoid. And here my point is, uh, we always hurry too far, too much in organizing elections and in drafting constitutions. I think elections do not unite people, they divide people. And constitutions also, you, know, it's a, you have a lot of argument. Constitutions, I think, are made by, you know, it's really, it's really a contract between people to say how we live together. People who are killing one another yesterday they don't have enough confidence in one another to draft a constitution. And the constitutional process in Afghanistan was extremely interesting, ultimately successful, but we were, you know, millimeters away from failure. Three, four, five times, not once. We were very, very often uh, close to failure because of this, of this situation. And now, if you ask me, we shouldn't have gone for constitution-making in Afghanistan when we did. The 1964 constitution of the king, toileted and with, with the uh, 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 monarchical elements in it taken away, as we did in Bonn, would have been very good for Afghanistan for another 10 years. Uh, taking the risk of failure when we did, failure would have been terrible. We were lucky we didn't fail. But I think there is, there is no, no need to take such a chance. Elections 
are always problematic in situations like this. The election in Iraq in 2005 was a farce uh, with no names of candidates. Um, there was no names of candidates and you know, I think the militias organized the elections and voted for everybody. <laughs> uh, so um, I think this election was a little bit better. Uh, um, the uh, the uh, government of technocrats, that's a proposal I made and uh, you know, included in a report to public report to the Security Council. You know, after my first visit, I said, this is what Afghanistan, this is what, what Iraq needs, exactly as you said. And that all these people, whether they came back with the tanks of the Americans or in any other way, should start campaigning for the election and then win the election and govern Iraq. Uh, but there was, you know, unanimous rejection of, uh, of, of, of this idea. So the government we formed was not a government of technocrats. It was you know, government that was possible. Uh, as I said, you know, we tried to eliminate a few people here and there that were bad and introduce one or two people who were not too bad. That's, that's all we managed to do. And I told you I'm not very happy with, uh, with uh, what I did. In Afghanistan, I resigned after two years. In Iraq, I've been there uh, five months, less than five months. And I refused to stay on. Uh, so I didn't resign, but uh, I think, I don't think anybody doubts anywhere uh, that I wasn't uh, happy with even what I did there, and I didn't want to continue. Um, about what happened in, in Iraq, Babylon, and uh, all, all, all those uh, things, you, you are absolutely right. I think I have said that the country has been destroyed. And my question is why? Is it for Israel? If it is, it is stupid. If it was done for Israel, it is stupid. Israel is the strongest country in the Middle East. There, I think having Saddam there was extremely good for them. It was very, very good for them. Um, yes, it has, it, in, in our part of the world, I think 99% uh, of the people think that it was done partly for Israel and partly for oil. Is that true or not? I don't know. If it is done for Israel, as I told you, it is stupid. Okay. Now, I think we've just got time for three shortish questions. So I'm looking around. Yeah, we'll take this gentleman here. David Held here and the person right over there. Yes, uh, my name is Robert Laver. I'm an independent consultant. Um, I would like to ask you or to comment on the suggestion that the problems in Afghanistan, with a lot of oversimplification, I admit, are basically two. One is that the foreign armies are there to make sure that Al-Qaeda doesn't come back into Afghanistan. And the second one is that the problems that are internal to Afghanistan, it is very difficult, for any, especially for any foreign government, to come in and help them solve them. They might be solved by UN peacekeepers who have the experience of solving the problem, but otherwise it is the parties within Afghanistan 
who have to get round the table and make some agreement to progress and to make peace. Foreign armies are not going to solve any problem in Afghanistan. Thank you. Okay, and then who did I say next? David. <laughs> Well, well, thank you very much for a deeply moving and, um, and impressive set of remarks. You bring extraordinary experience and uh, wisdom to your reflections. So let me ask you a fairly simple but I think a very difficult question. Underpinning much of what you say remains the ideal of an impartial UN. That international law st still has efficacy and the UN can still be impartial. Yet much of what you suggest is the story of the way in which power politics and the geopolitical settlement of 1945 plays itself out to fundamentally contradict the dream or the ideal of impartiality. On the other side, we know that the reform of this very power structure, the UN system itself, is extremely difficult and perhaps beyond us at this time. So then, in, in light of your wisdom and reflection, where is the ideal of the impartial application of rules and the impartial enforcement of rules? Thank you. And then finally, right over there. I mean, in 2001, eight years ago, there was a war between the Taliban government and, the, um, and George Bush. And obviously, George Bush is going to promise a war till the end of time. And as, as he's promised, and he's kept his promise for eight years, it's just been total massacres in Afghanistan. And you, you personally, I blame you personally, because you completely fudged the issue of where the United Nations stops. You were the, the chief agent of the United Nations in 2001. I don't know where the United Nations stopped. You'd have to be far cleverer than me to work out where the United Nations stopped and where the United States started. Anyway, the fact remains that the United States used fuel air explosions to win that war in 2001, which the slang term is daisy cutters, which is where you have a, a 600 metres and everybody's lungs within 600 metres is destroyed, which my slang, I would call that chemical weapons. I would call that uh, weapons of mass destruction. So you were cheerfully, you talk about two years, I wouldn't have stayed there for two hours. I would have looked at that for two hours and said, I quit. I'm not going to be fudging the issue where the United States starts and the United Nations finishes when, you, 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 when, the, when the war is won by George Bush using weapons of mass destruction, which you might as well, why didn't you drop an atom bomb and get on with it? What, what's the difference? You, you, you just destroyed a Taliban government using weapons of mass destruction and you sat there, for, are you talking about two years? What, what the hell's going on? I blame you for what's happened eight years later. Ten peace-loving men, ten, five, five, pe sorry, five peace-loving men question? committed suicide because of the, of the shambles that you created eight years ago. Thank you very much, Mr. Brahimi. Thank you very much, Mr. Algeria. Algeria can go... Okay. Is there some vengeance of what happened in the 1950s? We've got your point. Come on. What, Sunshine? Answer that one. Um, you know, Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda, uh, I think, left Afghanistan probably before the end of 2001. Um, I think it is now well documented after Tora Bora, Bin Laden and everybody else uh, left. Uh, and I, I think that 
you know, I always say what I think I know, the Americans know better. I have known since then that Al-Qaeda was in Pakistan, not in Afghanistan. So this is not, uh, this second, this, your second, the, your second uh, uh, observation is absolutely right. The foreigners, and especially the military, cannot solve the problems of Afghanistan. They can help the Afghans solve their problems. They can help the Afghans solve their problems. If they decide that they cannot help them, they should leave. Uh, but I think they can. I think they can. But you see, what is, what is certainly not acceptable is, you know, as, as Paddy Ashton has said, is for the British to be in Helmand and think that they are in Afghanistan and, and so on and so forth. And, and, the, and to find, to kind Al-Qaeda could come back, why don't you go and, and solve the problem elsewhere? You know, you are not going to stay in Afghanistan because Al-Qaeda risks one day of coming back. I think what the way, the, the way to ensure 100% that Al-Qaeda doesn't come back is to help the Afghans build a state that can protect itself and will not allow its territory to be used by anybody else. And I think that this is doable. If the NATO countries think that it is not doable, they should leave. This is, this is my, the, the, the point. Of, uh, this is my answer to your question. The impartiality of the United Nations, you are absolutely right. Now that we are involved in these complex uh, uh, missions, um, we sometimes are called upon to take, uh, to take action against one party and therefore are seen to be supporting one party. Um, you know, it all depends how you do it. Uh, I think if you do it in the right manner, you will be seen as having rightly or wrongly taken sides in one particular place. But you will not be seen as being used everywhere by a country or a group of countries. This is, uh, and I think, you know, even in one country, I think the Taliban did not object, the, I mean, you know, they did not put a cross on the United Nations because we were critical of them. And we were much more critical of them than we were of, of anybody else. We did not recognize their government. You know, they, they were controlling 95% of the country, and yet their seat in the United Nations was occupied by somebody else. That is, that, you know, of course, the Taliban never thought that this was, this was right. But I don't think they, they condemned us because of that as being totally impartial and totally... Uh, 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 useless, as I think, uh, you know, you don't know where the U where the U U.S. starts and where the U.N. Uh, ends. Uh, this is what is this is what is wrong. So uh, uh, no, no, sorry, we don't have. Sorry, yeah. sorry, yeah. sorry, we don't have time. What I want to say is that, uh, you know, this is I think what when we went to to, to Afghanistan, uh, the United States was fighting Al Qaeda and we were trying to help the people of Afghanistan rebuild themselves. And I think this is what the United Nations should do in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and anywhere, anywhere else. But they should always be careful not to be confused with individual countries, even if they are the United States. Well, I think we've now come to an end. I think this was a fascinating hour and a half, and I do think, if anything, 
Lakhtar Brahimi gives hope for the kind of idealistic, impartial United Nations. He's the face of the kind of United Nations we'd like to see. And I think also that if we can't have that kind of United Nations, if we think all we can do is to abandon places because we behave, have behaved so badly in the past, I think it's very, a very pessimistic outlook for the world. So thank you very much for coming, spending this time.